0: Welcome to the God Is Not An Asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your hosts, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self.
1: So, you doing okay, Dr. Doctor Watkins? I'm, well, you know,
2: I'm okay. Uh, I had a recent uh, title switch. My, my my supervisor left the agency, and so I have become the supervisor. And so, there's all of that to adjust. So, I'm good,
1: though. How are you all? Yeah, we are. We're just uh, happy to, to see you and to have you. Just really honored, actually.
3: I'm Carrie. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you for
1: being with us today. Yes, yeah. So, David, I'll let you. Yeah. Okay. So, I subscribe to this uh, daily email from LGBTQ Plus Nation, and um, back in 2020, uh, uh, October of 2020, that's when I discovered this name, Dr. Julian Watkins, because he was chosen to be a hero of the year. And um, I just started reading and I just thought, what a fascinating human being. Um, I have to connect with this person. <laughs> so I, um, you know, I emailed or something anyway, or LinkedIn, I don't remember, but got in touch and invited him to become, speak for me. And when we decided to launch uh, this Program. God is not an asshole. He's one of the very first persons that I thought of. And uh, for the benefit of people who are who who have not uh, heard of you, I'm going to just give a brief intro, even though it sounds like this intro might be slightly dated. Uh, city medical specialist, New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Uh, Dr. Julian Watkins is a public health professional and a clinician deeply concerned about the mass trauma inflicted by the COVID-19 pandemic. He firmly believes that communities will need new and creative pathways to healing to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. He also believes that to truly make ourselves whole, we must also address the age-old crisis of white supremacist delusion and systemic racism in meaningful ways. And he created the People's Project as part of an artist residency with Beverly's, a lower Manhattan art gallery and event space. So I could spend a whole lot of time introducing you or we could hear from you. So let's go with the latter. And I I know that you, you are uh, you're from even though you are in New York City, you're from South Carolina. No, no, wait, wait. Where is it? Virginia. Further south, I'm from Atlanta. Atlanta, yeah, okay, I knew that. All right, I knew you were from the south, all right, and I knew that you uh that you grew up in a you know in a preacher's household, yeah, and uh I think this is a good moment for us to just uh let you tell uh some of your story, would you please?
2: Um, where to begin? Um, you know, grew up and uh you know t- as a typical pk as we kind of call it pastor's kid um you know went to church school for middle school um through college through undergrad um you know just a really you know I, I would say a kind of charmed childhood honestly you know growing up in the suburbs um my mom was a teacher as i said my dad was a preacher and i think really early i think those um, the values that they instilled in us, you know, community, um, you know, education, and then just this really focus on, um, like in like care, you know, my, my, my dad's kind of specialty, he's an evangelist, um, but also was, um, deeply involved in community service, like led community service work for the regional conference, so just growing up, that was just like always a part of it between like, you know, you know, in the local grocery store, my mom, you know, walking with everyone, you know, all of her students, former students um, and their kids who were in our class or like, you know, uh, going with my dad to go visit the stick and shut in or work on things, uh, you know, in summer, like summer tent, camp, tent revivals or other things. It was just kind of like deeply instilled. And so I kind of knew I wanted to kind of get into the field, but in a more kind of I had like a traditional kind of, oh, like a community doctor, you know, like the doctor bag in your hand, um, house visits. I know it wouldn't be like that, but whatever what whatever that looked like in the present day was kind of what I thought. And so I went to Howard University uh, for my med- medical training and went to University of Miami for my um, residency. Um, just wanting to kind of expand my scope of practice, get involved in more tropical health and think about um, global health. Um, and also, you know, uh, improve my, uh, my Spanish language skills. So that's kind of how I kind of got into the medicine part. After training, I came to New York and was like a typical kind of, um, academic hospitalist seeing patients in, in a hospital, um, in one of the big systems up here. But then I would say there was a, the first big shift came in, um, Towards the end of 2016, um, you know, uh, there, November 2016, you know, there was an election, you know, and people, you know, was had it? my own had my own uh, <laughs> a national election, and indeed, kind of had my own kind of like, <laughs> won't say what happened. We all know, um, <laughs> and the trauma that ensued. Um, but I think that was when I was really just thinking about the work in a deeper level, and what was was it, what was the impact. And did it really align with what was going on? And that's kind of when I, you know, was in, was walking in the train, walking in the train station one day, and I saw this cheeky ad um, for the sexual health clinics um, that are re- that are run by the health department. And I, you know, on the train, I just googled it and like, oh, do they have any openings? And it just kind of led me on this pathway um, that kind of ended up here where I was at. You know, was in that um, in that bureau for um about about two years, three years, you know, when everything kind of hit and then COVID-19 came and we were one, we were this epicenter and I was like at this point where I knew my clinic was closing, but I also knew that I had a very particular skill set, um, knowledge, background, and just view of the view of the issues. Um and I just felt like it was the time to really embrace that change. And I felt like if I Whatever I need to do to meet the moment um, and to really uh, be a force for good in the world when I knew all the bad was coming, and I kind of made a commitment to myself that whatever the change would be, I'm willing to do it. I'm going to embrace it. And even if I'm unrecognizable to myself at the end of this process, that I was willing to do it because I knew deep down that things would be different, but it didn't all have to be for the bad. So that's kind of the background.
3: Um, yeah, the idea of you saying unrecognizable to yourself is such a that's such a courageous that's such a courageous um, place to go, like a, a forward motion to take. Because I think so many people r- don't aren't willing to do that. You know, um, I'm yeah. really curious. I'm really curious. Having been on the front lines of COVID and seeing the impacts specifically that that has on, or that, that, that uh, had and is still having on marginalized communities. I'm really curious to know how did that impact change expand your faith, if it did at all. And I'm also really interested to hear your thoughts on that old adage, God is in control, which I don't necessarily always buy into um, when it comes to things like, like the pandemic.
2: Yeah. You know, like, you know, coming out of the religious experience, um, you know, I kind of had, I struggled uh, with the way that I identify with faith. And I think that my faith, you know, definitely has extended a little bit beyond kind of like the Judeo-Christian understanding of what like a higher, of God is a higher power. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't, I feel like the way that I view my faith is I believe in the, I definitely do believe in that there's something out there but I'm comfortable also knowing that I could never understand Mm. it fully. Mm. Um, And I think that if for me, I feel like the respect that I have uh, for this higher power, for whatever, for the thing that is so far beyond me, I feel like I I personally feel more respectful to just sit and just with that discomfort and that unknowing, because Mm -hmm. who am I to presume that 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 it's for me to know? Um, And so when I I think but one of the things that I do firmly believe in in the faith is I believe in the faith of the human spirit. I believe in and I believe in the power of love, I think. Mm -hmm. And I really had to lean into that um, over the last few years as a place to come from, um, because I think having a firm grounding is 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 necessary for the courage, you know, to kind of step out, you know, I think you also need that grounding for like that to extend that grace that um, mm-hmm. is also a part of it, to know that you may not get it right all the time or someone else may not get it right, or someone may be impacted by some trauma or some other kind of thing, but to be able to have that grounding and to know that you, can, you have a place to come from um, that's just bigger and older and <laughs> feels more permanent than you, like that kind of, that's kind of how I, how I kind of view faith and how it's kind of moved in my life for the last few years. So it Thank sounds you. like
1: you, carry. he may have answered your question about the whole God is in control thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was just curious, too, uh, when I reached out to you, you know, two plus years ago and asked you to speak at our church, uh, what went through your mind? Because, you know, I mean, I support and, and see reality, you know, in the ways that you articulated just now. But what went through your mind when... Like a pastor is asking me to come speak at a church. Well, part of
2: it, you know, part of part of the journey that I had, you know, you kinda of have your rebellious youth and you're like, you know, the things that may have happened to you, or things that you may have witnessed. But when you know, really getting to it, I'm almost I think and I think it was that grace thing and kind of coming through that love. And I knew that so I wasn't gonna throw it all away just because of some of the experiences because tied to that faith is, you know, a, a legacy and a grounding and a a, a beautiful spirit. Um, and I think tied to that is like the cultural aspects and the familial aspects and just community and this understanding. So I said, that's for me too, you know, despite mm-hmm. what people may say, whatever, that's mine. And so I thought, I'm not going to throw that out, but I feel like my relationship can change and I want to, and I said, I, I'm not going to shy away from the conversations and actually lean into it. Because I think that there is, I think that the church, what it has represented for my people um, and for so many people is one of the only spaces where people can get that spiritual, you know, where their spiritual needs can be met. Because, you know, in the culture that we live in, there's zero acknowledgement or under, very minimal acknowledgement or understanding of those spiritual needs that we all have as humans. And I said, I wanted to go, I wanted to go there because I think those legacies and traditions are so rich. Mm -hmm. Um, and I needed to tap into that to be able to do my daily work. And so embracing all of that and knowing that that's part of, that's part of me too.
3: I love that. I have, um, I want to, I want to switch gears just a little bit because I think that, I think that this is really important, um, to bring into the forefront and, and so many people don't recognize that. And that is the ways in which, uh, what i call white pseudo supremacy because it's not actually whiteness is not su- actually supreme so i like to try to point that out but, but the ways in which white pseudo supremacy is woven through the medical system and um and especially during the pandemic and you know when you when you talk about grace i imagine that for healthcare workers who are seeing the, the very real harm and knowing how much white pseudo supremacy was really woven into the narrative around covid um how much grace, superhuman grace, must have been required on the parts of so many healthcare workers um, in the, in that time? So, can you can you in, in kind of give us maybe some uh, some insight into some of the ways that systemic racism is playing out in the medical field?
2: Yeah, I mean, when you think about the, you know, we, I think when we use some of the language that we use to describe what has happened to us. Um, I don't think that, I think it kind of, it fails to go as to, as, to the depth of, of what it's done, you know, like this mm-hmm. thing, you know, this delusion um, of white supremacy, um, how deeply it's impacted us. And I think often the way that the the way that the society looks at it, we just look at the results of it, like what is the impact, you know, on these marginalized people, you know, how, what has it done to, you know, the victims? So we just look at, you know, so it's positioned in this power and it's like, it's powerful and it's ubiquitous, but at the same time, it's irrelevant and it doesn't mm. matter, right? And because so it's but, happening
3: to people who don't yeah, matter, you know, essentially, it's, right? It's
2: like that but, deniability where you can't yes. prove it or mm-hmm. you can't acknowledge it or they look at you like you're crazy or something's wrong with you if you are acknowledging, you know, but the way I see it is it's it's all of it's that right it's ubiquitous in that, but it's also so weak and flimsy at the same time the foundation is so fragile you know yeah. a lot of these people who who have submitted themselves in the future or whatever to this concept to this construct it's so fragile you know and you, we, we, there's a lot of conversation about snowflakes but like you know it can't you know it's all about ego it's all self referential you know but also like it's it's a it's a dull, it dulls the senses you know mm-hmm. it is a uh, it degrades you it degrades your senses where you can't see the reality in front of you where you can't feel and touch your you're you're out of touch with your own heart where it's like an anti-human rhetoric yes. it's an anti-human way of seeing the world where humanity is stratified you know, across five racial groups, and this one group that's on the top, and everyone who's not that is viewed as less than human. Mm-hmm. You know, it's unsustainable. It's been around for just a few hundred years. And look at what unfettered white supremacy and capitalist extraction has done to this world, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's all of those things. It's unscientific. It's so mm-hmm. grounded into the scientific process, which itself, as we understand it, is a very, a fairly recent kind of patriarchal you know (laughs) project like a lot of like a lot of a lot of white dudes in europe a few hundred years ago sat around and it was all just so narrow you know Mm -hmm. so convergent so just narrow there's only the one way to do it there's only one common there's only one person who can do it and this is like so anti the sciences that all the uh, the other sciences of the world Mm -hmm. and even to the point now where it's like we find ourselves oh well all that stuff doesn't matter because it's not proven. It's not validated, but no one could ever ask, do we, is, it, is it that it's not valid or that it doesn't work or is it that we actually don't have the tools mm.
1: to measure?
2: We can't qualify or quantify it because we've been dulled that much by this thing, right? And mm. so it's that and seeing the results of the intellectual project of white supremacy. So mm. like we can't have a community safety system beyond policing, right? We don't have a public health system that serves people. We don't have a healthcare system. We don't have an economic system. Like, what do we have? Mm. What has it actually done for humanity and for all of us? And any arguments to say, oh, we're living in modernity or whatever, I don't know. I don't how how will you measure the modernity of a civilization when at the core, the human-to-human interaction, we are Mm. we are in the dark age, we are in this. Fifteen hundred sensibilities, right? Mm-hmm. So that's when when I when I hear that question, that's what comes up, like how what it's done to us, and we're in this emperor's emperor's new clothes situation, and we're all just sitting around, yeah. you know, sipping yes. the tea,
1: yeah. And
3: so what I know. hear you saying, and and it's something that I talk about a lot in my work, and uh, I know Resma Menicum has talked about it too, is the wound of dominance, right? That yeah. the, that the fact that white bodied people, we carry this wound of dominance. And to your point, it's, it's inherently frail, it's wounded. And, and we build around us all of these defense mechanisms um, that make us feel better, but inherently like all of these, this construct of superiority, uh, assumed, presumed alleged superiority that we claim is, is false, right? It's all a straw house. And when you really start to look at it, it, it gets blown down so easily. And to your point, we, I'm pointing to myself because for those of you who cannot see me, I am white bodied. We as white bodied people, we are, we are deeply wounded and traumatized and we are refused. We're just like vomiting our trauma and our pain all over the world. Right. And it's when we start to to do our own healing and start to recognize that, that the world is actually going to change. Right. So um, it's, it's, I, I, I'm i curious about what you think will change, like what what's required for real change? Yeah. What's the steps that need to be taken?
2: Um, I think that everyone has every, you know, these kind of bigger, you know, categories, you know, of people as we kind of see folks as, you know, these racial and ethnic categories. Um, we all have our particular things that we have to work through. Um, I think when it comes to, like, the dominant culture um, in the United States, in the Western world, I think that, you know, most of these people who see themselves as white need to realize that white people have a serious problem.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: You know? Yep. Um, Truly, there's a crisis in communities. And, you know, whoever the, you know, the leaders of the white community need to deal with white-on-white crime. They need to deal with, these other clean you know, up with white on every other part of the, <laughs> of the species crime, you know, white violence against the earth, the land, um, the sea, you know, the mm-hmm. air. We have to, re- that's a big problem, you know, because unfettered and unchecked, it has, mm-hmm. you know, murdered entire races of people, you know, and it is destroying the world. Um, And this is the one world that we have. So I think that's the one thing that we all have to realize. But I think at the same time, all everyone else has to realize that there's nothing particularly special about white people, because I think as humans, we all have the capacity for this Mm -hmm. and we see how it plays out in places where where most most of the places have been touched by whiteness. Right. But a lot of the particular situations that are happening in other parts of the world, it's a similar kind of thing operating out of fear operating out of, you know, an obsession with power and control and manipulation. There's that, you know, the power and class struggles, that's a human thing. But so, so there's nothing in particularly like that stands out for white people. I think it's just the fact that, you know, they've got all the guns. Right, um, exactly. I think it's all realizing that we're humans and that we really have this work to do. And I think the severance or that trauma that you said, that severance, we have to return to ourselves, you know. We've all been severed from these ancient connections, you know, humans as natural beings in a natural world that respond to the seasons, you know, that respond to the moon and these other things, right? Like, if we see ourselves as natural beings mm. as part of a natural world, I think that we would see that the nature is not something to be conquered and mm. nor are our other fellow beings, right? I, yeah. I
1: get the impression that you know that for us to have a conversation with you is like uh, shaking up a coke bottle, and you know <laughs> <laughs> all of the, and then we just took our thumb off the top, and you know all of this stuff is coming out. Good but stuff, at the same yeah. time, at the yeah you, but you don't come across like this is like you know acid eating you up inside, even though it definitely is disturbing everything you're saying. You know points to how disturbed and distorted. You know, the, the world is my, my, my doc, my personal doctor who, who met you because he's part of our community. He calls you Saint Julian. Um, (laughs) and you know, it, 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 it comes from, you know, just your, your spirit. And even when I have asked you in the past about, you know, about religion, you know, you, you're, you're so graceful in your responses. And it reminds me of, uh, during the pandemic, I participated in, uh, theological forums with people in the academy on the East Coast, which we don't have African-Americans like that much on the West Coast. You know, they're all out where you went to school, Howard and, and other places. And one of the things I picked up is how how generous they were towards uh, people of different uh, sexual orientations and gender identities. But at the same time, they were gracious towards they they said things like, Well, you know, it was those churches that motivated us, that sometimes even funded us going to school. But those churches are still heteronormative, and they're trying to find their 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 approach because they recognize, as you mentioned, that there's a power in community and in inspiration. So how do you process that?
2: I mean I mean human beings are fundamentally Pretty, you know, like the basic meat, the basic essentials and needs that we have be like, you know, air, water, food, you know, boils down to community. You know, we're we're not we're not these rugged individual creatures that are operating in like this vacuum, you know, like we live in a world and society. And it's only very, again, very recently that we've been that we've decided that we are these individuals. Where for the majority of our of, of our time on this planet, human beings have these been these communal, communal know, creatures, and so I, it's like, and just knowing that religion and these other things have been have been used to really meet a, a particular need that I think everyone has, like this universal need for belonging, for a grounding in something, a belief in something. I don't think that, you know, the, you know, the major world religions now necessarily have the monopoly on it. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important for us to recognize that there is a spiritual need and -hmm. people are, people are out here struggling doing the best that they got. And if someone is genuinely in, you know, whatever they're believing in and whatever they're leaning towards, if they genuinely believe it and they're, and they're seeking that community, I'm not going to sit there and judge them. However they, however they're getting to getting it. And like, who am I to judge? Right. And so it's, it's stepping back and extending that grace to people, you know, extending the grace that you would want folks extended to you. I think morally it stands, but I think, you know, I think as a testimony to the power of love that. You have to show that it's real and you have to, and you have to like bear witness to it's, to the, to the fact of that. That's one thing I got from the Black church and the Black, um, Mm. you know, and my up, and my upbringing that you have to. And I think the other, the other bit is I I feel like the power of the liberatory, the liberatory power of, of the, the, the Black religious tradition that coming out of that Exodus story, I think is so powerful, specifically during times like these. To have folks know that we can come together and get to the other side of whatever mm. is, well, whatever comes our way, but we do it together. Because Exodus was not a single person walking in forty years to get to the promised land. Mm-hmm. It was it was everybody.
1: So, so Julian, you know, you're talking specifically about the the black church experience and. You know, I, I, a friend of mine was in town last week, Brian McLaren, who I know that uh, Carrie's uh, aware of. Um, Indeed. And he recently wrote a book called, uh, I think it's it's titled like, uh, Do I Stay Christian or something like that. But, you know, all I could hear uh, when he was talking, and he's like the most gracious person you could meet like yourself. I mean, he's just you know, he's not an asshole. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) I love being around him. Um, But, you know, as as he discussed that, all I could hear was, do I stay white Christian? Because Mm -hmm. the, the, the black church has always been largely a resistance movement. And you, you know, you mentioned the Exodus, which is not necessarily the case for the, um, for the white church. So, you know the fact that we are all humans and you know the, you speak in a very expansive way how do you analyze how do you look at the white church that's a really good question
2: i mean honestly i don't look that i don't get them that often you know <laughs>
1: <laughs> i think when
2: i really think i mean that's that's for them to really they got their problems again right
1: mm-hmm.
2: so when he's asked the leaders of the white church what are they going to do about the problems in the white community you know, because the exodus story should be, should resonate with them. Look at what they're stuck in, you know, look at where they have, look at where they have cornered this position. They have cornered themselves into mm-hmm. the yeah. judgment that they live, that they levy on poor people and women and all these other people and never list, never follow the basic tenets that they say that they believe in. It's a you know, it's a, it's criminal. It's, it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's 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 you know it's, it's, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. you
3: know when when you say that as somebody who came out of a steep evangelical shiny tooth skinny jean pastor smoke machine kind of church, right? Um, the 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 problem, the, the way that I see it, is the white church is the problem, right? Like that, the white church is at the core of so much of white white supremacy. And patriarchy and heteronormativity and uh, able bodied ism. Like all of these, all of the isms it can, can, can be traced back to the white church and very specifically the white non denominational evangelical church right now, which is the, the hot seat for white Christian nationalism. Um, and the ways in which they operate are so dysfunctional. Um, and we're seeing them burn down to the ground. If you're in any of those circles, they are, they are literally burning down their their leaderships are uh, leadership teams are imploding. They are being accused of things like rape and sexual assault and, um, all sorts of crazy stuff. Right. So I, I, I really, I do believe that white women, while we have done so much harm in this world, we are, we also have the capacity as boundary walkers to do so much good, right. By calling out those power structures. And I, and many of us are trying to do that. Many of us are trying to do that. And there's, there is great danger in doing that. The death threats, the trolls, the, the, those are, those are all very, very real um, experiences for white women, myself included, who do any sort of work in this in this world um, regarding trying to tear down patriarchal and white supremacist structures so i'm curious to know I, I i'm i have my question it's like forming in in the back of my brain i'm trying to find language i'm curious to know when you when when you see or experience um white-bodied people doing this work we're always going to mess it up right we're always going to do it not not perfectly, but what would be your encouragement, I would say, to those of us, any of us, not anybody who embodies any kind of what I call intersectional dominance, right? Because some of us have, you know, um, depending on your embodiment, right? Uh, you, We all might have some sort of dominant part of our, of our identity. So how can we, what kind of encouragement do you offer to anybody who embodies any kind of dominance in, in any of their identities? To, to do this work and to do it well and to do it courageously and bravely and radically in a way that actually initiates change and not be lukewarm, but to be brave and hot.
1: I mean,
2: I think the first thing is welcome to the human experience. When you, when you get out of, when you can re- actually see yourself moving away from this fictional category of the sovereign being that rules the world and the history of man and is <laughs> formed in, has formed the image of God, when you can move yourself away from that and see that yeah. you're just a valuable person who is worried about the next meal, wants a little bit of love, a little bit of care, a little bit of safety, right? Once you can get yourself out of all of the head stuff that is put on folks, welcome to humanity. Mm. welcome to the scary mm. side welcome but welcome mm. to the fullness and richness that is in there and you'll realize that everyone is making it up as they go everyone's mm-hmm. just trying to do the best that they can right mm. and it's moving away from the good bad binary thing that people are stuck to that you got to compare this to that and i'm always just it's like enough when you get out of that and then you realize that it's not about am i this fictional category of good as, as good or not or Whatever is bad, you realize that we're in this and we have work to do. We all have Mm. a place in this and that there is a clock ticking, right? Mm. When folks can get out of that, enjoying the rest of the species that has been the whole time working on these things, thinking about these things, focused on these things and devising things to save this planet, despite what these people who are walking around with this complex that they are these master beings, despite all of that, to know that that the door is always still open for them—that's some grace. That's something that they can yes. learn from the people they see as lesser than. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Do, do you? You're in New York. Do you follow any of the sports teams there? No. <laughs> Somehow <laughs> no, you- I thought you
2: follow its drag race.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah you turned us on to uh to to um oh my goodness pose pull, too? Pull, yeah. yeah pose it's a scripted show but yeah yeah so anyway um well i was just gonna bring there's a player on the brooklyn nets uh his name is ben simmons and some years ago kobe bryant was on a talk show and he was interviewed and asked kobe you know what do you think about uh, Ben Sim, this guy is, he's a physical specimen. He can do it all, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, Kobe- before the question was out of the interviewer's mouth, good, Kobe says he's got to get a jump shot. And <laughs> later there's another interview where Ben Simmons kind of dismissed it. And I don't know how long ago it was, but Ben Simmons is now sitting on the bench of his team instead of a starter because he never got a jump shot. And I, I equate that to, People, humans who do good, but don't do the most important good of the moment, mm. you know? So just like Carrie was talking about, you know, as a white woman, the things that she's addressing and she's calling out and it's its hazardous, it's risky. The thing is, is that she could not do that and do every other thing that's good, but she got she would have to get a jump shot. I mean, that's the thing that matters yeah. at this point. And yeah. so confronting the, uh, you know, the so-called white supremacy and all of that, uh, that's, that's, that has to be done. And, you know, I can appreciate your awareness, doc- Dr. Watkins, uh, because you could just be being a doctor mm-hmm. without the consciousness that you have. You could just, you know, be treating people, but, do you think that your treatment of your patients would be as strong and comprehensive if you did not have the awareness of the world that you have and your spirituality which is so manifest I mean it's hard to say
2: because it is what it you know I think whatever comes flows through me um you know I think one of the one of my main projects is to make sure that it aligns you know mm. i want I want it to be a natural expression of what is in my heart. You know, I want the alignment. I want people to see it. I want people to, you know, we have a conversation. We have a, a little chat on thinking I would love if someone would walk away and be a little bit changed. I would love to invite someone to imagine a little bit more, that there was a different way to look at things or a different way to be at different possibilities. I would love to share a message or a book or a reading or a passage or a poem or whatever that resonated with me and to share why um, and just invite someone to just, you know, just consider. Um, and so I don't know what my practice would be like if it wasn't fully embodied. So I feel like it's, it's kind of always been there, but I think that's kind of just how I, I was raised and kind of how I like see things and operate. Like I couldn't do that just, this disembodied dis thing where when I put on my white coat, I am the robot engineer, you know, a non-emotional. That doesn't make sense to me. It like I can't function like that. Tried it, but that was the mm. primary tension in those early training days. Where they try to tell you, this is how a doctor thinks. This is how a doctor talks. This is what a doctor thinks about. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's some of it. But there's all this other stuff that's going on. And like for me to give the care that I think that people deserve, right? it takes more. And so I had to really, it took, it takes a lot of effort to do it. It, take, it takes a lot of craft, a lot mm. of energy to really think about, to really present the messages that we do and to engage around these difficult topics and to hold space for these difficult, emotional, painful things, such as mm. the history of marginalization or, or could also be called subjugation, you know, dom- you know, mm.
3: You know, when you're talking about that, that whole idea of, you know, the disembodied doctor, that's, you know, disembodiment is one of the core symptoms of whiteness, right? It's, we white people are incredibly disembodied. We're programmed, we're socialized to to be out of our bodies. And my experience, this is the very first time I've met you. And my experience of you just in this, in this short time is a completely embodied and sold being, right? Like you, th- everything that you've, that has come out of your mouth has fl- flowed as if it is who you be, right? It is who you be. And so I can completely, I I can see what you're talking about, about the, the, that yes. difference of, of, um of bringing the full self to, to your work and your labor, yes. you know, um, and not just dis- being disembodied and the difference in care that I can imagine that must must offer to people, right? Um, because when I think we've all had the experience of sitting across in that very vulnerable pos- position of sitting across from a disembodied physician um, yeah. and you can you really can feel the difference um, when somebody is disembodied and and they're not even they're not there in their body, much less being willing and able to see you in yours, right? Um, They're just seeing your body. (laughs) They're not seeing you in your body. Um, And I think that's, I think that's a really important thing. And I think it's one of the key first things that white people have to learn how to do is how to be back in the body, which brings me back to the fascinating thing that you were talking about, about us and nature, you know, about returning to nature. um, And the ways in which Christian colonialism, in my opinion, removed white body, white people from our indigenous experiences um yep. i don't really have a question it was just more of a it's, conversation it was, there. i think
2: it was a i think you you ne- you hit the nail on the head because i think there that the, the christian church that came out of europe and in this dominance it was closely tied and was a tool of Absolutely. this colonial you know white white supremacist project to spread this language of domination around the world. Yep. But I think the, I think the, the dark side of it is that it, the Christian church was also connected with that justification, but it went mm-hmm. even beyond that. It didn't just make it just. It made it holy. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they used it to render themselves these holy beings on a holy war against mm-hmm. these people or in a holy mission to eradicate them for their own good or to disconnect them and disembody them from everything that they know and love
3: mm-hmm.
2: in exchange for not much, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that what they did to themselves by leaning into the church and the domination of the church, they severed most of the, of the, of the indigenous white practices and connections to the wow. earth and the body from the witch hunts to these yeah. other kind of hunts to really disembodied people from these embodied practices that are mm-hmm. a lot more, again, pan-human, or more closer to everyone kind of coming out of this, right? But, like, that severance is something. And it's, and if you, and, you know, there's, like, that, you know, like, if you, it's like a law, like Baldwin has, James Baldwin has said, like, you know, there is, like, this indisputable law in humanity that if you dehumanize someone, that you are going, you are dehumanizing yourself.
1: Yes. 100%. I know that, I wanted to to find out in in our closing minutes, if there's something, I don't know if it's the people's project um, where you want to challenge narratives that seek to pathologize marginalized communities and you want to replace them with considered and careful discourse to build community and to raise consciousness and promote non-market values, is there something, is it the people's project or is there something that you would like to make sure that everybody who's, uh, who's uh, participating who's participating Right now, uh, should be aware of. I mean, it's it literally, it's
2: literally everything right now. You know, in my position in the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, working in you know health equity, bringing these, you know, not maybe not you know I'm not talking about the white church and you know its criminal past and, and, and <laughs> in my day job, right? We're talking about vaccines and other things and health related topics, but bringing this level of discourse and understanding to the fact that we have spiritual needs that we have been spiritually wounded and that this moral the moral injury of the last few years, you know, between practitioners who enter the healing arts, right? Uh, of, pa- of patients and people who, it's, it's, it's painful to realize that the Hippocratic Oath, that the oath to do no harm that these people take did not and does not extend to you and your family, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's also a traumatic experience for people in these healing arts to have it seen and experience what they've lived through and been through and to see how the society treats them. So I bring it to that work and, you know, I bring it to my other work, you know, be it through my partnership with Beverly's, through people's projects, you know, I'm working with a farm, a farming group up in upstate New York in the Catskills um, called Starroot Farms to just really, you know, what my, having this whole embodied in practice And thinking about climate change and its deep connection to our food systems. Um, and the fact that we've been severed from that. I think a lot of us actually have deep familial connections and ties to the earth. You know, I come from people who tilled the earth. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, against their will at times, but also, you know, folks who did it under as their daily practice, you know, and to be so in like that, we're also disconnected from the food that is sustaining us, which we have to return to it. So it's like, it's across all the different parts of the work. Um, So yeah, I mean, the People's Project is one, but yeah.
3: Thank you. We will definitely make sure there are links to all of those things in the show notes. And I so appreciate having had this opportunity to speak with you. I'm right in New Jersey. So one of these days I'll make it over, hopefully, to the People's Project and see what's going on there. But um, it was such a pleasure to to get to know you today. Thank you so much for your presence today.
1: Yeah you you never fail to you know spellbind me. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah it, it's so refreshing you know to uh, to share the planet with you at this time and uh, you as a person who's younger than I am uh it you know empowers me with hope and I don't want to dump a burden on you <laughs> or anything like that but just to say that who you are and what you're already doing I think is transformative. I think that you're probably accomplishing more than you can you can account for because you're just being you and the power of your humanity is just you know it's just spreading everywhere and who would have thought that you know i would you know here in santa barbara california would be having a conversation with you over these past couple of years having never heard of you before and yet you know you're reaching people out here and in many places so thank you so much Yes. thank thank you for having me you know
2: I think it's it's all about the transformative power of love, and just giving into it and embracing it. I think that was the big severance. You know, I don't right. want to hold this, but I think that's the severance. You know, the fact that love was reduced for so many of us to, you know, these shallow kind of surface understandings, when it is mm-hmm. one of the most powerful forces that we have seen in humanity. That it has freed, you know, freed us from chattel slavery without you know, the guns and the bombs and everything, you know, that we've been able to maintain our, 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 our dignity and humanity in the worst of conditions. And we've survived many, many Ar- Armageddon's before. That's the power of love. And I feel like embracing it, every generation has has that task, you know? Do we fall back and go to the deep, dank places of, of yore or do we move forward um, and, pa- and the, the power of love lights that path forward? Um, and the evidence is there. So I just thank you all so much um, for having me. It's so lovely to meet That's you, Carrie. Great.
3: Oh, same here. That was such a perfect, perfect way to end. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> thank you so much for being here today. We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at God is not an or text 805 703 8393 because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.